Hello, welcome to the Let's Talk Sciences Declassified STEM Survival Guide podcast. My name is Audrey, and I'm one of the site coordinators for Let's Talk Science at the University of Manitoba. The goal of our podcast is to talk about the possible career paths one can take in the field of STEM and the challenges one may face in navigating the STEM world. So today is a bonus episode from day two of our annual high school symposium, Envirotalks. So in April 2021, in honor of Earth Month, our team hosted a virtual symposium for high school students to learn more about the careers available in the field of environmental science, engineering, and design. So you will be listening to a presentation from Dr. Gail Davrin. Dr. Davrin is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Her research interests include marine ecology, species interactions, food web dynamics, marine conservation biology, seabirds, whales, and forage fish. So Dr. Davrin's lab investigates interactions of forage fish and multiple marine predators like seabirds, whales, and fish to understand predator-prey and food web dynamics. So this research uh, will increase our ability to maintain the long-term productivity of this northern marine ecosystem to sustain fishery yields and conserve marine biodiversity. So that's a little bit about Dr. Davrin, and I hope you enjoy the second episode of our bonus series, Envirotalks. Okay, so what I want to talk to everyone today about is marine conservation ecology, or more generally, marine conservation biology. So I will, I'm going to um, talk about that at first, and then I'm going to talk about my predator, my research um, off the coast of Newfoundland, um, which focuses on predator-prey interactions. And this research is all being conducted at the um, University of Manitoba. So what do you want to be when you grow up? I used to be asked this question all the time when I was in high school, and I found it very frustrating because I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. So if you're in that situation, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I took a lot of personality tests, those tests that you answer a bunch of questions and they tell you basically, you know, what your um, predicted career path would be and what kept coming up on these personality tests were that I should be a movie store, movie rental store clerk. So you guys are too young to uh, know what these things are, but it was basically a big store that you'd go into and you would rent movies. And this is before, like physically rent the movies, this is before online streaming. So good thing um, I didn't go down this path because this all closed down and um, with online streaming, I would have been out of a job. So my parents also didn't accept this career path, this potential career path. And so they sort of forced me to go to the University of Victoria. So I grew up in Victoria on uh, the uh, west coast of Canada. So British Columbia is all in here. And I grew up in Victoria, so I went to the University of Victoria. And I was kind of flipping around in general sciences um, at first, so I was really interested in biology as well as chemistry. And in second year, I took this really awesome course, and this was called the Principles of Ecology. And this really opened my eyes to a lot of really exciting um, things or research, scientific research that was going on. And I found a lot of interest. So I remember coming home halfway through the semester and saying, okay, mom and dad, I've made a decision. I want to be an ecologist. And of course, their first question was, well, what is ecology? Which was fair. And so the basically what I told them and what I had learned was that ecology is a subdiscipline of biological sciences or biology. So it's the scientific study of the interactions between organisms and their environment, 
where environment can mean basically any factor that is outside of the organism that can influence it, basically influence its growth, survival, and reproduction. So these factors can be abiotic, so physical and chemical. So if we think about a tree here, um, it is being affected by the amount of sunlight. Um, of course, if it doesn't get, or it, it needs the sunlight to photosynthesize and therefore to grow and uh, survive and reproduce. It also needs water, which is another uh, physical factor that influences its ability to grow and survive. It, other factors could also be biotic factors. So these are just um, other organisms that can influence each other. Okay, so we can have a tree, which is an organism, of course, um, that can influence another organism, this frog right here, by providing or by changing the temperature um, and changing the amount of sunlight. And ecology, basically, as an ecologist, you are a scientist. Okay, so obviously we're gonna, we're gonna use the scientific method. So we're gonna first go out and observe and discover new things. Okay, so we might do this, we've done this with humpback whales. So this is just an example here of an observation that's being made. So you can see these bubbles starting to form near the surface of the ocean. So there's a bit of a bubble wall coming on here. And then what you're gonna see in a second is a humpback whale is gonna pop up at the surface, has its mouth open, which suggests that it's um, feeding on something. Okay, so we may go out and we make an observation about this. Then the next thing we're going to do is we're going to question, okay, so what do, what, what are, why do these humpback whales actually blow bubbles? What are the purpose of these bubbles? So we're gonna come up with a, we're gonna observe, we're gonna come up with a question, and then we're gonna try and come up with answers to that question, which of course is a hypothesis or an explanation for what we are seeing. So we might come up with some hypotheses. Okay, well, maybe they're blowing bubbles for foraging purposes to eat. Maybe they're doing this to avoid predators. Maybe they're doing this to interact in a social interaction with another individual. So now that we have a couple of hypotheses, we're gonna go out and try and test those hypotheses as an ecologist. So maybe we'll go out and sample, maybe we'll see um, if there's fish associated with this kind of behavior in this bubble and these bubbles, um, maybe there's predators in the area when they do this and we can infer um, that predation is what they're trying to avoid. Or maybe there's social interactions, there's other individuals as we see in this, there's two individuals that we can see in this video. And then what we're gonna wanna do is come to some sort of conclusion or inference, okay? And so in this particular case, what scientists as ecologists have determined is that this is a bubble netting primarily for foraging. So what these humpback whales are doing is they're basically swimming in a circle and they're blowing bubbles, which is creating basically what's referred to as a bubble net. So it herds their fish prey, so schooling fish, it herds them all into one area and then they can basically, and the fish will not escape through the bubbles, so they basically open their mouths and swim up through the fish. So this is just to describe that as ecologists, we are scientists and we would go through the scientific method. So also at the University of Victoria, I was able to, you know, after I got beyond the first couple of years, I decided, okay, I really wanna do biological sciences. I wanna do a degree in biology. And I had an opportunity to take a course called conservation biology. And I absolutely loved this course. It absolutely changed the way I saw the world and changed the way I interacted with everything around me. So again, I went home and I told my mom and dad, halfway through the semester, I said, mom and dad, I wanna be a conservation ecologist or a concert, more generally, a conservation biologist. Now, what is conservation biology? Well, conservation biology emerged as a subdiscipline of biology during the 1970s. And this was primarily in response to mass anthropogenic extinction. 
Okay, so what does mass anthropogenic extinction mean? Well, we know probably everybody knows on the call here what extinction means. This is the disappearance, so complete elimination of all individuals of a particular species. So we can think about this as just eliminating a species from the planet. So if a species is extinct, it is no longer present on the planet. And then if we wanna think, okay, well that's extinction, but what is mass anthropogenic extinction? What this really means is the dying off of very large numbers of species, and this is due to human activities. So humans are going out, they are doing things to the landscape, to the seascape, that is causing a lot of species, marine, so aquatic species, as well as um, species that we would find on land, causing these to go extinct and being eliminated from the planet. Now, if we look at the information from the fossil record, the background rate of extinction, if we look over millions of years, is approximately one species per year. But right now, what's going on is the present rate of um, extinction, and this again is anthropogenic extinction, so extinction due to human activities, now we're looking at a rate of about a thousand times this background rate. So we're losing thousands of species per year. And just to put this into perspective, this is similar to other mass extinction events um, that have happened over mil the millions of years. Okay, so we can, we can liken this mass anthropogenic extinction to really large scale extinction events like 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs went extinct and when we lost about 50% uh, or over 50% of the earth species. So this is happening right now and it's because of us. Now, what is causing these really high extinction rates? Well, one of the main causes is just human overpopulation. The human population is growing exponentially, so we have lots of more mouths to feed. So that's one reason, but we can also liken even our actions, even though there's a, there's a lot of people, also our actions are affecting um, the extinction, these extinction rates and causing them to be high. So one um, sort of concept that we can take from social science, so our sociology, uh, professors is tragedy of the commons. So to explain tragedy of the commons very simply, we can think about a very simple example where we have a common grazing pasture. So that's what I'm trying to show with this rectangle here. And this was brought up by a number of people long before this um, paper in science by Hardin, but also um, this was kind of the first time that it was formalized and called Tragedy of the Commons in this paper in 1968. So we think about this common grazing pasture, okay? So we think about a small community, say there's 10 families in this small community, and each one, each family has a, has a cow that it has in this common grazing pasture. And so with this cow, they're basically able to feed their family. They're able to make some money off of it, selling parts in the market. But one family gets this great idea and says, you know what? I bet we would do really well and a lot better if we put another um, cow in the pasture. So they do that. And all the families around them see that that family is doing really well. So the other nine families go right on. That's a great idea. Yeah, let's all put another cow in that pasture. And then maybe the first family says, you know what? I did really well adding a second cow. Maybe I'll add a third cow. So they do that. And all the other families do the same thing. And this goes on and on and on until at some point, there's too many cows in that pasture. There's no, there no longer is enough food to feed all of the cows and all of the cows die. This is an excellent example of tragedy of the commons. So to put it a little bit more formally, basically when we're talking about tragedy of the commons, we're talking about selfish behavior, um, basically of individuals that brings about disaster for the entire society. So the selfish behavior of individuals is very rational. Maximizing profits, doing very well is selfish, but it is 
incredibly rational. Us trying to make more money, we want to be able to you know, do different things with our money. So this is rational behavior. Unfortunately, it is highly selfish. And so what we see in the long term is that the society is going to suffer from this. So what are modern day kind of um, examples of commons? This, this idea of commons is basically any kind of shared resource where there is access that is on access to the resource that is absolutely unregulated. Okay, so we can think about fishing and hunting. If there's no regulations to the fish that we're going out and we're fishing, or the animals that we're going out and hunting, this will lead to this due to the tragedy of the commons, this will lead to over exploitation. So sometimes even when we have regulations on how many um, fish or animals we can remove from the um, from the environment, we often don't have regulations on how we can remove them or so how we can fish or how we can hunt, which leads to a lot of destruction of habitat. Also, we can think about logging. So removing um, trees from a forest, this leads to um, habitat loss, which leads to a lot of um, species going extinct. We remove their habitat. This means the species no longer have a place to live. And we can also think about pollution. So unregulated release of pollutants into our um, common air and uh, so our, our resource, a common resource, which is um, air and water, this destroys, so this unregulated release of pollutants destroys this common resource. So a good example and an unfortunate example of this is the release of greenhouse gases, which has led to um, climate change on a global scale. So I'm getting near the end. So I was getting near the end of my undergraduate degree. So this was a four year biological sciences degree at the University of Victoria. And I realized, oh my gosh, I had miscalculated how many courses I needed to graduate. So I wasn't the most organized person. A lot of people would argue maybe that I'm still not the most organized person. But anyways, I realized that I needed four more courses to graduate and it was I was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to spend another year in university. So I decided, okay, well, I'm going to try and take some summer courses somewhere. And at that time, no summer courses were offered at the University of Victoria, but there was a very nearby, there was a Marine station. So up on the West coast of Vancouver Island, there was a Marine station called the Banfield Marine Sciences Center. And they had undergraduate courses that I could fit. So I could finish off my degree. I could take these courses during the summer. And I thought, oh, phew, my parents were so mad at me. And I thought, okay, you know, I've just redeemed myself. So one of the courses that I took out at this marine, uh, marine station was a marine conservation biology course. And again, this completely changed my life. Now, a lot of things were going on. So this, I'm going to date myself. This was in the early 90s. And a lot of interesting things and, and awful things were going on actually in the environment. So at that particular time, especially on the west coast of Vancouver Island, where I lived, um, there was, we knew that there was global de deforestation. So we were removing large tracts of forest across the planet. And this was to, you know, for, for logging purposes. So basically to, to provide paper and tree basically get trees from or paper from trees, but also we were burning large tracts of forest to make pasture land, um, agriculture land, all these different things. Really close to home, we had these. So on the west coast of Vancouver Island, we have these old growth forests. So just to give you an idea of the size of these trees, here's a human standing right here. So these are huge, massive trees, and companies were buying up the land and taking down these old growth forests. And there's a lot of species that require these all old growth uh, forests as habitat. In particular, there was one area called Clayquot Sound and a logging company had gotten a hold of this particular um, area and had decided to remove all of the trees. They were just gonna go in and, and clear cuts, so remove all of the trees. And this sparked the largest, at that particular time anyways, the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. So civil disobedience just means there was a lot of peaceful protests. So there was 
um, 12,000 people that went to Clay Quat Sound in the summer that I was at the Bramfield Marine Science Center that protested um, the logging. So people were chaining themselves to trees and doing a whole bunch of different things. And oh, there was over 850 people arrested. So things got a little out of hand at some point. Um, and we were all there. So me and my friends, we were all there. And so you can see here, um, this was a big protest on one of the weekends, Protect Clay Quat Sound. And so I was pretty young then. So I was in my early 20s. And, you know, I could see, you know, there was lots of us young people there. But if you can look in the background, there was a lot of older people. So this wasn't just young people who were protesting, which is something that you see quite often. There was people who were a lot older and they were very upset about this. So people were getting sick of, of the fact that this was just happening on a global scale. Large tracts of forest were being removed. Also at the same time, we started to get early indications of global overfishing of our oceans. We were starting to get some indications of that. Now we have a lot of evidence that this is happening worldwide. So one of the first indications was actually in Canadian waters. So, and this was the collapse of Atlantic cod. So on the far east coast of Canada, so just off of Newfoundland, there's this species called Atlantic cod and we fished them um, since the 1500s. So this is just um, a graph showing the catch in, in thousands of tons. Okay, so if we follow from, this is just from 1850 to 2005. So here we see our catch, it's pretty stable. It goes really, really high in the 70s, comes back down and then relatively kind of back to normal catches in the 1980s. But then in 1992, the population just absolutely collapsed. So by 1992, the abundance of this particular fish species had declined by 99%. So there was 1% of Atlantic cod, or the, the abundance of Atlantic cod left in the ocean. Now catching Atlantic cod was the main industry for all of Newfoundlanders and a lot of people in Atlantic Canada. So this obviously caused massive um, socioeconomic issues. So there was a lot of people just were completely out of work. There was a lot of government assistance at this time. So this was kind of the, one of the first red flags that we could overfish the oceans. And we never thought that we could do that. Uh, Atlantic cod was such a super abundant species that we thought that there was no possible way we could ever cause that population to collapse. So this was a major red flag and really freaked us all out. Now, after seeing all of this, taking these courses, I'm at the end of my degree and I was so upset. I was like, what are we gonna do about this? What are we doing as humans? What are we gonna do to stop this mass anthropogenic extinction? I had protested, I had done everything that I could think of, but nothing seemed to be making a difference. So I found um, one of my favorite professors who had actually taught um, me the ecology course as well as the marine conservation biology course and he had been I had seen him at a couple of these protests and I sat down and said hey can we have a heart to heart I, I need to know what I knew he was passionate about marine conservation biology but I also was struggling with what I was going to do so I asked him what he does what he is doing to deal with all of this conservation, all these conservation issues. And he said to me something that stuck has stuck with me for the my entire life, is that his contribution as a scientist was to increase the scientific study and scientific knowledge of basically how biological systems work. And by doing that, we will know um, how harmful our actions are, and therefore we can stop doing them. But if we don't, if we can't make those direct links between our actions and the effects that we have on our environment, then a lot of people basically will just say, well, who cares, right? So I took this to heart and I went home at the end of this summer and I said finally to my parents, okay, I wanna be a marine conservation ecologist. This is my chosen profession. And of course my parents said, that's great. Okay, Gail, now how are you gonna do that? 
So at that time, I had no idea what I was going to, how I was going to do this. Um, but my favorite professor had offered me a position, a master's in science position in his lab. So I thought, okay, right on. So I stayed at the University of Manitoba or Manitoba, of University of Victoria, and I did a master's in science. Um, and I did most of my research on the west coast of Vancouver Island. So if you don't know what a master's degree is, you're kind of not sitting in a, in a classroom anymore. Now you're out and you're doing research. So you're collecting information um, about whatever research question you decide to ask. And you go up and you basically perform the scientific method. You observe, you ask questions, you hypothesize, you test those hypotheses, and then you um, finish. So I had done my master's degree on this cool species here. This is the rhinoceros auklet. So it's a diving seabird. So it dives underwater, like you can see here, dives underwater to collect fish for, um, to feed itself as well as to feed its chicks. And when I finished this two-year de master's degree, then I decided I really wanted to go to the East Coast. I wanted to go out to Newfoundland. Atlantic cod had just collapsed, as I mentioned. The marine food web out there was changing rapidly because of this, and I wanted to get out there and do some studies. So I went to the extreme, I went from the extreme west coast of Canada to the extreme east coast of Canada, and I went to the Memorial University of Newfoundland where I did a four-year PhD, and again, this is not in a classroom, this is out doing research. And I did my research on this particular species, which is the common myrrh. And um, so you can see it also dives underwater to eat fish. Now, this is a really cool species. And I'm going to show you um, a video and just to show you why I think it is one, all of these species. So this is, these are two uh, seabird species. They only come to land to breed. The rest of the time they're out on the ocean and they have this really low wing area. So you can see that kind of here. There's a really low wing area. So they're kind of like a penguin. They dive underwater, they use their wings to propel them underwater and they collect fish. So they're very much like a penguin, but very unlike a penguin, they can still fly. So they can still fly. Um, they're very inefficient flyers. So they have to basically spend a lot of energy when they're flying in air because of that low wing area. But one of the questions that basically drove my entire, all of my research for my master's and my PhD was, okay, if we overexploit certain fish species, especially the fish species that are really critical to our top predators, like these seabirds that I'd been studying, what happens to these seabirds? Do we see declines in their abundance? Do we see them going extinct? What would happen? So I went out and I did a whole bunch of measuring of fish abundance, okay? And then I also did, um, uh, as far as what I did with the seabirds is I studied their diet. So I tried to determine what fish species they were primarily eating. I also looked at time budgets. So I wanted to figure out how much time that these birds were spending um, searching for food. So how long it took them to find food and then how long it took them to capture that food because all of that costs energy. And then I wanted to see, so if, if I was studying, sometimes I was uh, studying the birds in the winter, but also in the breeding season in the summer, I wanted to know whether this amount of time that they had to spend foraging, whether this affected the ability of them to feed their chicks and therefore um, affected chick growth and survival. Also, whether that this affected um, adult survival and in the whole, whether it affected population size and whether it would affect the population size so much so that these, um, the population size, so how many individuals there are um, of this particular species, if they would decline towards extinction. So that's really what I did. So um, that was master's and PhD. So that was six years of my life. And then Right, I had started to apply for a whole bunch of different jobs. And right when I was feeling quite a bit of despair, I, when I was starting to practice, would you like fries with that in the mirror? Um, I 
got a call from the University of Manitoba and I went to interview there and I became a professor at the University of Manitoba and I've been here ever since. So what research did I decide to do? Okay, so one of the things that I had been studying a little bit at least was forage fish ecology. I was going out and I was measuring those fish species, um, the abundance of those fish species that all top predators are relying on. Okay, so they all eat these fish species. So just to give you an idea, we'll just go through a really quick um, uh, example of a marine food web, a very simplified example. Okay, so we have our plants, our, our microscopic plants called phytoplankton at the bottom of the food web, okay, or the base of the food web. And then we have our herbivores at this level here. These are our microscopic animals. So these little tiny zooplankton, they look like tiny little shrimp. Um, they are the herbivores here. So they feed on the phytoplankton, so the plant species. And then we have this really important um, level or trophic level within our food web. And this is our forage fish species. Okay, so this is our secondary consumers. Okay, so these are carnivores that eat these microscopic um, animal species, these zooplankton. And then if we look at the top predators, so these are um, our whales, seals, our top predatory fish, so Atlantic cod and our seabirds, they all rely on this um, forage fish level. Okay, and what we know from, if we look at the global marine fish catch, okay, so we look at all of the fish that is caught globally, about 30, about 33% or about a third of the global fish catch is these forage fish species. And what we know about our marine ecosystems, which is very different from our ecosystems on the land, so our, our terrestrial ecosystems, is in marine systems at this particular part of the food web, this, this level of the food web, um, we only usually have one or two species that are basically performing this important function or important role within the food web, basically transferring energy from these lower parts of the food web up to these top predators. So if we overfish these fish, you can imagine that that flow of energy to these top predators basically stops and we have a complete collapse of our ecosystem. So I really wanted to boost up how much I was studying these forage fish species. And I wanted to continue to study predator-prey interactions. So this foraging or feeding ecology of our top predators. So I had already, as you know, I had already been studying uh, seabirds, but I wanted to add in predatory fish, in particular Atlantic cod, because I was out, I'm still working out on the east coast of Newfoundland. So I, we go out every summer to the east coast of Newfoundland and um, do research out there. So we wanted to, um, or I wanted to add predatory fish, we wanted to continue studying seabirds, and we wanted to add in, or I wanted to add in marine mammals. So in particular, these large baleen whales. And I wanted to understand, so if we're fishing this level, what is going to happen to these top predators? I wanted to keep studying that. And so hopefully you guys can hear this. This is just a, a one minute um, video that shows, um, that sort of overviews what we do in the lab. So I'm just gonna play this now and hopefully you guys can hear it. Every summer, Newfoundland waters become highly active with marine life. The driver of this activity is the arrival of capelin, a small forage fish that provides food for a diversity of marine predators. The Davern Lab at the University of Manitoba has been monitoring capelin and their predators for over 15 years. We investigate how oceanographic conditions at capelin spawning sites, such as temperature and salinity, influence habitat selection, while monitoring capelin health parameters, such as growth and body condition. In addition, we study the foraging ecology of marine predators, including many seabird species, Atlantic cod, and humpback whales. We study the diet of these predators to determine reliance on capelin as a food resource and how this changes over time. We deploy tracking devices on seabirds to determine movement patterns and habitat use, and how these shift under varying capelin abundance. By deploying accelerometer tags on humpback whales, we learn about movement and behavior while foraging on different prey, including capelin. Our research integrates information on capelin status and its ecological importance in the Newfoundland marine ecosystem. So hopefully you guys could hear that. Every summer, Newfoundland... Oh. 
Okay, we don't want to keep going. So, okay, so how, what do we do in the summer when we go out to Newfoundland? What are we actually doing out there? So usually I take a team of students with me. So some undergraduate students at the University of Manitoba, as well as um, masters and PhD students that are working in my lab. So we go out to seabird colonies. So the seabirds uh, that we study all are what are considered to be um, colonial breeders. So they breed on these offshore oceanic islands. Okay, so this is an island called Funk Island. Sorry, it's a little pixely, but this is a small island. So that's about 800 meters by about 400 meters. So fairly small. It's 60 kilometers from the nearest point of land. So it's way when we're out there, we're way out there. So fishermen take us out. They bring up their boat alongside. We jump off with all of our camping gear and they leave us out there for a couple of weeks and then they come back and pick us up. Now, Funk Island, you might be wondering why the name is Funk Island. Well, on this uh, colony, there's over a million birds that have nests. Okay, so there's a million birds, at least a million birds that breed out here. And so you can imagine with all these birds pooping, you can imagine just how funky the smell is. So hence the name Funk Island. So there's about 10 to 15 species, depending on the year that you look, um, that breed out on this island. One, um, the three most abundant species are the northern gannets. So this white area here is um, all northern gannets. So there's 9,000 breeding pairs. So this is a northern gannet here. It has a little GPS tracker on its back. And this is very similar, a fairly large bird, very similar in size to our pelicans that are around here. And we also have the Atlantic puffin that breeds here. So they uh, breed in this grassy meadow area. So they dig burrows in the sod and they lay their eggs um, and raise their chicks in these burrows to avoid predators. And then one species, and you can't probably really see it very well, but all along in here, you can see some black that goes all along in here and down all over here. And these are common murs. So this was the species that I was studying for my PhD. And on Funk Island, there are 500,000 breeding pairs. Okay, so this is 75% of the Northwest Atlantic population on this tiny little island. So you can imagine if something came, if we had an oil spill or something like that during the breeding season out here, this would be devastating. So just to give you a feel, you saw a little bit in the video in the overview vid video, but just to give you a feel for what this looks like from the ground, this is what it looks like. So there's birds everywhere. Okay, so all of these white things and the black, that's all individual common MERS. And you can see that there's tons of birds flying in the air. And what I was just absolutely amazed the first time I went out to this colony. And what I learned very quickly, because your first instinct is to look up in the air and open your mouth and go, wow. But you don't want to open your mouth when you're looking up, because again, these birds are flying overhead and there's lots of them and they're all pooping as they go. So you have to be kind of careful. It's a bit of a nasty place for that, but it's overwhelmingly amazing in the, in the amount of life that is there. So just to give a little close up here, if we want to look at a nest. So they actually, these common birds actually do not build nests. They lay their egg right on the barren rock and they have one, so a, a pair of birds would lay one egg per year and raise one chick per year. So there's always one parent that stays at the colony with the egg or the chick, while the other parent basically leaves the island, goes out into the ocean, and tries to find fish, feed themselves, grab a fish, one fish, and bring it back to feed their chick. And that's what's going on. This parent has just come back with a fish, and it is basically giving it to the chick, and the chick is going to eat it. Then what happens is this parent who just brought in a fish will stay, hang out at the colony with the chick to guard the chick from any predators. And the other parent will go out to sea and pick up a chick or pick up a fish for the chick. Now, what do we do from boats? We do a lot of our work from boats. And so we have a whole bunch of different instruments that we can actually um, throw out into the ocean. So one thing that we do a lot of is we run these lines. Okay, so we pick a line, we run it, along it and we count seabirds and fish. So how we count fish is using 
um, a, basically hydroacoustics. It's a sophisticated echo sounder or fish finder, if you will. Okay, so it basically sends a sound wave out down into the water, and basically the sound wave will bounce back if it if it encounters. Um, anything that's a different density from the water that it's traveling through. So from this, we can find out, okay, what is the depth of the ocean underneath the boat? Are there any fish there? And we can sometimes determine what species of fish as well. So as we're running these lines, we're continuously recording um, the depth and the fish, um, what fish are associated um, or underneath us. And we're also counting seabirds and we're counting marine mammals. We also stop and deploy a whole bunch of different equipment. So temperature, so we can measure the temperature at the surface and continuously all the way down to the bottom of the ocean and back up. We can also, we also have instruments that record temperature that we can leave at specific sites that continuously record temperature so we can get some indication of the temperature over time. We also have this big, huge um, metal mouth that basically we can drop down to the bottom of the ocean and once it hits the sediment or the seabeds, the seabed, what it does is it snaps shut. And so we can get a sample of what um, you know, type of sediment, for instance, these uh, fish are associated with. So trying to get at fish habitat. And then we have a range of different um, types of nets. So nets with small enough mesh where we can pick up the food. So these micros microscopic animals, so our zooplankton that are forage fish are feeding on, and we can also sample our forage, forage fish to try and determine their health and body condition. One thing that we got within a couple of years of me starting at the University of Manitoba was a remotely operated vehicle. And this was super cool. So it's basically, and I'll show you a picture of, of little Ray. We named him because he's so awesome. And basically what we can do, it's this little um, vehicle that we can actually, we have a joystick and we're sitting on the bridge, so up here on the ship, and we have this little joystick and we can drive him around underwater and he has a video camera, so in real time, we can see what he's seeing down there. And this was really great because it kind of changed the way we think about, or our ability to see what was going on down there in these deeper depths that we can't really dive to, really kind of changed the way we did our research. Now, forage fish ecology. So again, I mentioned that most of our research is happening um, off the east coast of Newfoundland. So one of our main species that we're studying is capelin. This is the main forage fish species in this area. So remember I mentioned there was one or two fish species that are really um, important in marine food webs. Well, capelin is the main one in, in the coast, in coastal Newfoundland waters. So most prey, it's the prey of most uh, predators. So birds, mammals, and large fish. And there's a commercial fishery. So there's um, we're actually out there and we're fishing these capelin as well. Now, one of the cool things about capelin is that they spawn on beaches. So just to give you an idea of what this looks like. So every year they come, they're offshore and they come to inshore waters and they basically drive their little bodies up onto the beach and the females release their eggs and the males release their milt, which includes, which includes sperm and they fertilize the eggs, the eggs stay there on the beach and they eventually hatch and the little baby fish or larvae swim out into the ocean. So we typically only see spawning at beaches when the beaches are anywhere from two to 12 degrees Celsius, okay? If the beaches are too warm, then we don't see spawning at that particular beach. So it's pretty cool to watch. And what we also saw when we were doing surveys very early on is there's these incredible areas where there's huge concentrations of predators, which we called biological hotspots. So th this picture doesn't do, it, do this justice. So here is a humpback whale. He has his pectoral fin up and he's waving at us. And there's hundreds of thousands of seabirds. So just to give you an idea of what this looks like, I'll show you this video. So this was a video one of my students took. And so what you can see all of these um, white things here is a whale that's coming to the surface and is exhaling. So it's blowing air out, which is causing this um, cloud of mist. So you can see that there's just hundreds of humpback whales 
And you can sort of get a feel for the numbers of seabirds in these areas. And we could come back to these same areas year after year after year and find huge numbers of predators in these same very small um, spots. And we had no idea why this was happening. So as I mentioned, we had just gotten our remotely operated vehicle. So we decided to use it. So drop it down under here, under these predators, these huge predator aggregations to see what was going on down there. And so uh, we did this. So this is Ray. So this is our remotely operated vehicle. So he's not very big. He's got thrusters here on both sides and there's a thruster up here. Um, so we can control the depth as well as whether it goes right or left. So we dropped it down and we saw this. Now this is a, maybe a little bit confusing. This is the seabed here, okay? And what you can see here, this is all capelin, okay, our fish. And just, just to give you an idea, this is one fish right here and there's the eye. So we observed this huge abundance of capelin that was associated with the, with the seabed. And there's all these, um, so there's fish up here, a little bit up in the water column, but we also see that there's all these white things in the water. And I was trying hard, we were trying hard to figure out what this was. So the next thing we did is we sent down our big bottom grab, our big mouth that took a, a sample of the sediment um, in these areas and we got gravel. So we brought up gravel and there was all these little white things all over them and we couldn't figure out what those were. So we decided to pop those under a microscope and take a look. And this is what we found. So we found fish eggs. So just to orient you, this is a fish that's developing within an egg. So its body is kind of spiraled up. This um, big sort of circle thing in the middle is the yolk sac. And these black things are the eyes. So, and this is just a baby fish once, or a larvae once it's um, basically hatched out of those eggs. So what we were, what we've discovered is this was the first record of deep water spawning of capelin. So remember I mentioned that they spawn on beaches and this was the first time we'd seen them spawning in, you know, 200 or sorry, 220 meters of water up to 40 meters of water. And so this led us to sort of our, one of our main current research questions. With climate change and with the increase in temperature of the air as well as of the ocean, we would predict the capelin would move more to these cooler deep water spawning sites as those beaches become too warm. But the problem was initially is we didn't know how many of these fish eggs were able to hatch and so basically survived from these deep water spawning sites. If there was very low survival from these deep water spawning sites, then if Capelin moved off these beaches into this deep water, then we could see that the population, if there was low survival from these deep water spawning sites, in the future with climate change, we would expect that Capelin would just disappear from the ocean. So we started to try do um, a bunch of different experiments where we tried to determine how many eggs and larvae, so those baby fish are produced from each spawning habitat, so the beach and the deep water, and to try and determine whether capelin will be able to cope with climate change as it's predicted to go into the future. So we've done a whole bunch of lab-based experiments um, where we've raised eggs under different temperature conditions and seen basically how, um, what the survival rates and hatching success are. And we've done some field sampling. So gone out to the beach and the deep water sites and tried to figure out, you know, are the egg densities the same? Is hatching success the same? And so what we found over about 10 years of research is that these deep water spawning sites are very productive and similarly productive to the beach. So the capelin should be able to cope with um, any changes if they have to move off these beaches because they're too warm in the future, they should be able to do all right with these cooler, in these cooler deep water spawning sites. Now, also current research questions is how will these predators respond if capelin declines? One thing that we've noticed in um, the last few years is the capelin abundance has declined quite a bit to the point where we're thinking we might be in a bit of a capelin or a collapsed 
um, situation. So a massive decrease in the amount of capelin. And this is very worrisome, obviously, for all the different predators that we've been studying. So the species, so the common myrrh, we have a whole bunch of other species. So this is a razor bill, very similar species to the common myrrh. We're also studying humpback whales and Atlantic cod. And so we're looking at the diet of all these predators, the foraging effort, chick growth um, in the case of birds, but also um, uh, we're looking at, you know, the calf body condition of humpback whale um, calves and looking at the adult body condition. So how are these predators going to do if capelin is in fact collapsing right now? And so a lot of people say, well, why are you studying the foraging effort? What, who cares about foraging effort? And foraging effort is absolutely critical. Critical. So understanding the foraging behavior and how much time and energy a predator spends finding, you know, spends out there finding their, their fish and capturing them becomes really important. So imagine the birds are at breeding at this colony. So this is during the breeding season, say, in a hypothetical example. And so this bird here, this red bird, is going to go out in a year of very low capelin abundance and is going to try and find fish. Okay, so it's going to leave the colony, it's going to try and go out, it's going to search quite a bit, it's going to look for fish, it's going to finally find them, it's going to feed itself and then bring a fish back to its, um, to its chick. Now that's under low capelin abundance, but what would, what would that foraging effort look like under high capelin abundance? So if we look at this black bird here, and we could see that it can actually, it's making shorter foraging trips, it's expending less energy, it's also spending less time foraging at sea, so it less time to bring back a fish to their chick, which means the chick gets fed quite a bit more frequently and can grow very well. So when birds and all predators are um, foraging, are spending a lot of e effort and time foraging, then what we tend to see is that the offspring do not do well. And in fact, a lot of seabird um, chicks will die under these conditions. If there's low effort, so when there's really high capelin abundance, then what we tend to see is these chicks do really well. They're able to grow, the parents can bring back enough fish to feed their chicks, they grow and they, and they reproduce, or they, sorry, they grow and they survive that summer and they come back and reproduce a couple of years later. So what are we doing? So this is razor bills here. Okay, so this is like a common myrrh, again, dives underwater um, to find fish. And so we're putting GPS tracking devices on a whole bunch of different um, seabird species to try and understand their foraging effort. So I'm gonna show you some tracks here. So just to stop that right now. Um, so this red dot just represents the breeding colony. So what you're gonna see is a whole bunch of birds. These different colors just represent the tracks of different birds. You're gonna see them going out. So this is starting, um, so this is hot off the presses. So this is 2020, so last summer. Uh, starting on July 13th. And this is Newfoundland, just to orient you. And these, this is kind of the area where our, all of our capelin spawning sites are. Okay, so in a good year, when capelin are in in abundance and they're spawning, we would expect them foraging in this very small area. So, but last year, oops, what we saw last year when there wasn't very much capelin around is we saw them not foraging in the smaller area but in fact, they're making these really long trips. So 40, 50, sometimes 60 kilometers away. And, and if you see how that um, basically goes throughout the summer, so now we're on um, July 16th. So these birds are still making these very long trips and these are all different individuals, okay? And what we're seeing, what we saw is that because of these really long foraging trips, these, um, razorbill parents were unable to feed their chicks at a high enough rate. So what we saw is that a lot of these um, chicks actually died at the colony. They weren't able to successfully raise these chicks. And we see this with other species. So this is uh, the Northern Gannet again. So we're back on Funk Island. So again, this red dot represents the colony and these tracks um, or these dots just represent the tracks of the birds as they go out um, to find fish for themselves and their chicks. So the gannet actually swallows the fish and then regurgitates that to their chicks. So this is the chick right here. It's got its head right up in mom or dad's um, 
uh, basically in their throat, getting that regurgitated fish. So in a year of really high capelin abundance, you can see that these tracks are very close to the colony. They're not expending very much effort um, to, to basically go out and forage. But in a year of low capelin abundance, there you can see that these tracks are much further. And again, in high capelin abundance, the chicks did well. In low capelin abundance, none of the chicks survived. And we see this with common MERS. Again, same thing. A year of low um, or high capelin abundance, pardon me, you see these trips are pretty short. They're not going very far. But in a year of high or low, pardon me, capelin abundance, you can start to see that these trips are getting longer. And again, we have happy chicks when capelin are in high abundance, and then a lot of dead chicks when capelin are in low abundance. And we also, as I mentioned in this overview video that you guys saw, we have these, what we call our Fitbits for whales. These are basically accelerometers. So just to orient you here, we have our open boat here. There's somebody standing right here with a long pole. This is our tag. Okay, and we want to put that tag. So there's two suction cups here. We want a suction cup and put that tag on the back of the whale on the dorsal surface. And the reason and what we can do with that is we can, um, there's, so there's a video camera on that. There's an accelerometer. So instead of you know, measuring steps, it's measuring speed of the whale. It'll, it'll measure, we'll be able to see with the video when the whale opens its mouth to feed and what species it's feeding on. So if you're curious about how we tag a whale, this is basically how we do it. So we approach the whale, usually a whale that's kind of chilling at the surface. We approach that whale. We have to get fairly close to it. Um, and you're gonna see that it's, you can see the white of the pectoral fin coming up here. And then we just give it a little tap on the back and there's the tag. Now it, I make it look really easy. It's actually very difficult. And we often get up and way too up and close we get up and close and personal with the whales and sometimes a little bit too up and close. So again, you saw a little bit of this video. So now this is um, a video of the um, tag that's on the dorsal surface of the whale. Okay, so we're looking forward on the whale. So this is video looking forward on the whale. So up here, you can see the blowhole. So on either side, there'll be the eyes. So we're looking at the front of the whale here. And this is the kind of stuff that we can see. It's not kind of the greatest video, but it gives us an idea of what's going on. So as that whale starts to really undulate and move, we know it's moving its head, so it's gonna break the surface here. We're gonna see a whole bunch of seabirds going, holy crap, running out of the way, flying away. Now this whale is going for a deep dive, so the, so the video goes dark, and then it's coming back up. And what we're gonna see here, up in here, is some fish. And the whale is going to, is getting close to the surface. It's going to break the surface here. And because this is all happening so quickly, we're going to slow, we're going to look at that again and slow it down. And so you can see that that whale is really given or is starting to go really fast. And we can see that it was feeding on capelin. So there's a lot of really cool information we can get and we can try and doc, or we can start to document how much time and effort they're spending to catch their fish. We're also doing photo identification. So we're doing, um, we're able to identify individual whales. So we do this based on the coloration and the markings of the underside of the fluke. So this whale is diving. So this is, we're looking at the underside of the, of the tail fin as it's going down on its dive. And so you can see that there's a bit of white here. There's a lot of black and there's some scars. And then this individual is completely different individual and it's mostly black and this one is mostly white. So using the amount of white and the scars on the underside of the fluke, we've been able to identify 361 unique individuals. And we know that about 38 of those individuals have returned to that same hotspot. So where those capelin are spawning in deep water. And we also know that about, there's about a thousand individuals um, that come through the area per year if we do a little bit of math. Now, very close to the last slide, so I'm going a little bit over, but this is actually pretty cool, so I want you guys to see this. Um, so what we ha I have a PhD student now who's looking at 
Um, so she puts a whole bunch of microphones out into the ocean. And what she's trying to do is associate certain calls that they make or vocalizations that they make with foraging. So if we can figure out what um, a foraging sound, so a sound that they make when they're foraging, what that sounds like, then we can put out these little recorders and we can determine the amount of time that these whales are spending foraging just by listening in, sort of eavesdropping on them. So what this is showing you is, um, you know, sort of, this is the amplitude. So this gives you an idea of the volume of the call. And then over here, this is what's called a spectrogram. So we have frequency on the um, vertical axis and then just time along here. And so we can pull out characteristics of this and hopefully you guys will be able to hear this. I'll just play a little bit of it. Hopefully you guys are hearing that okay. And then there's this period of time where we don't hear anything. And then we can skip a little bit forward. And we can hear them again. So that's some pretty cool stuff that we're doing. And, and hopefully within a couple of years, we'll have an idea of um, the sounds that they make when they're foraging. Okay, so that's um, basically, this is our, my last slide. And what I wanted to say here is, okay, well, we know that food webs are complex. So this is a simplified food web from the Northwest Atlantic. So the East Coast of Newfoundland, we have Capelin here in the middle. We have our seabirds up top here. Um, we've got our whales and we've got Atlantic cod here. So we've got all of our species. It's very simplified but we know that it's complex. So in order for us to really understand the action, the effect that our actions as humans are having on these ecosystems, we really need to study these species interactions. So the scientific study of species interactions, this is where I've focused to try and contribute to the issues of marine conservation biology. And it's important to understand these species interactions to try and figure out how removing or overexploiting, so causing that decline in the abundance of species is going to influence our food webs and therefore will allow us, if we understand these species interactions, we'll be able to you know, reduce this um, marine extinctions um, and maybe even stop this mass anthropogenic extinction event that is going on right now. And what I'm especially excited to see is what you guys are going to do in the future. So I want you all to go away and think about what your contribution will be to these conservation issues, both on land as well as in the ocean. Last thing I just wanna say, sorry, I mentioned that was my last slide, but there's one more thing. None of this work could be done without young people like yourselves that are coming into my lab as undergraduates um, so when you get to university, if you're going to university, um, we also take high school students sometimes um, out to do uh, some of our research or work with us to do some research. And none of this would be possible without their help. So I just want to acknowledge all of the students and people that have helped throughout the years um, to do this research because it's a huge team effort. It's not just me out there. There's a lot of us. And so with that, I'll stop and just thank everyone for listening. And I think we have a Kahoot going on and, and then I'm happy to take any questions that you have. So Anna had a question and she was wondering if you do any scuba diving as a part of your research. Um, we, we haven't done a lot of scuba diving. Um, the, and the main reason for that is um, we're just in too deep a water. Um, most of the work that we're doing, we just can't dive to those depths. Um, so that's why we actually ended up purchasing, purchasing our little Ray. So our uh, remotely operated vehicle is so we could actually get down to those deeper depths and see what was going on. Um, there are people that we work with that do um, dive in sort of the shallower areas.
but that's not where the majority of our research is going on. So unfortunately, we're not diving. A lot of my students that come and work with us um, do dive just recreationally, but we're not really doing a lot of that for, for this research. Awesome, thank you so much. And thank you all for attending. You are free to go. And thank you, Dr. Dobrin. Thank you everybody for coming. All right, that concludes the second episode of our bonus series, Envirotox. Feel free to check out the video of the webinar on our YouTube channel, which we have linked in the description of this episode. You can also listen to the third episode of the Envirotox series with Trina Semenchuk, the 2020 to 2021 president of Um Earth. Um Earth is a technical society at the Price Faculty of Engineering at the University of Manitoba. And they've completed several projects focused on sustainable technology, such as the creation of a green wall in the engineering atrium. And they also did a winter green project in which they grew food indoors during the winter season, which is pretty cool. So if you haven't already done so, follow us at LTS underscore U of M on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to be updated on our upcoming events. And follow and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and more. Thanks so much for listening. And together, let's declassify the classified.